All right, 1 Corinthians 12 is where we are tonight. 1 Corinthians 12. Um, we went through, and we've been talking about the gifts. Um, it's kind of like anything else in your life. The stuff that gets talked about a lot is the stuff you're having a problem with. Do you ever notice that? Like you don't, it, the, the song about count your blessings is, is a great piece of advice to sit back and think about how wonderful, how great, how good God has been in your life. That's a wonderful thing. But what you tend to spend your time thinking on are the things that aren't going well, the things that aren't where you wish they would be, the things that are blowing up or crashing into each other or whatever. Um, and so as we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians, um, what we've seen Paul discussing with them over and over in lots of different areas are the things that they're really messing up, the things that they've really twisted. And spiritual gifts um, have become, for them, a real problem. Um, spiritual gifts in our world, in our Christian circles, have become a real problem. Uh, our, I'll just give you our take on spiritual gifts here at Hope. Um, we, are, we are convinced that uh, the supernatural, what we would call sign gifts, gifts of tongues, gifts of miracles, gifts of healing, are not for our church. Um, I personally don't believe that they are for today. Uh, however, I will say this, I believe that with a very low-level confidence. <laughs> I believe it in that I am sure that that's what I believe. I, we don't have to have a discussion. I've studied the Bible lots and lots. However, I've also studied the Bible long enough to know that it's not all that clear, like the virgin birth of Christ or the deity of Christ or the atoning death of Christ. Like those things you can't argue about. That's just how it is. This stuff, there are people, there are many good brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than I think. And unfortunately in our church, that has become a big problem and it should not. I don't mean our church. I mean the church as a whole. Um, we have a lot of people here who believe in speaking in tongues and, and miraculous gifts of healing. No problem with that at all. Uh, we kind of agree that here's what we know. For us, that's not going to be something we practice publicly. However, uh, if you have a robust life, a prayer life where you speak in tongues to the Lord or whatever, I say praise God. You know, it, it, that's between you and the Lord, and, and I don't have anything to, no stones to throw at you about that. Um, but please don't throw any stones at me that I don't. I just talk to God in English. You know, that's like enough for me. Uh, sometimes in tears, you know, but just regular stuff for me. But that's just, I think God created all of us differently. And I think that's what, what we find when we get into uh, this study, this idea about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. So that's kind of where we are. And, and so Paul's going back to the, the Corinthians who really think that spiritual gifts are neato. They, they, they just think they're wonderful, awesome things. However, they like certain spiritual gifts. They like the spiritual gifts that make them feel powerful, strong, special, the things they can compare to someone else and say, look at me, I'm, I'm closer to God than you. And Paul, as we've been going through the first part of chapter 12 here, has basically been saying to them, um, you don't get it at all. This is not a reflection of your worth, of your performance. This is not something that you earned and something you can boast about or brag about. This is something God gave you for his purpose and to his glory. Later on, kind of he gives the implication that the greater gift God gives you probably means the worse person you are because God says he's going, to get, he's going to make sure that he gets the glory in these things, that it is his to his credit, not to ours. So there's this battle going on in the Corinthian church about who's more spiritual. Does that happen in church? 
people walk in and they try to judge if someone's spiritual enough or not spiritual enough. And You know, I mean, how, why do we do that with Christianity? When you start off with grace, when you start off with mercy, there's nothing I can do. I can't measure up. My life is an unredeemable mess in my hands. I can't get anywhere with it. I, as fast as I try to put the pieces up, they fall back down. I just can't get it together. So I'm desperately in need of someone who can save me from this. And God lovingly, graciously reaches down to offer salvation. And if I will receive it, he will redeem my life. He will pour out mercy on the things that I deserve punishment for. He will give me grace because he's good and he loves me. For the sake of Jesus Christ and through the blood of Jesus Christ, he gives me those things. And then how do I take that and turn it around into I'm better than you? Do you know what I mean? It just really overestimates suddenly our human capacity after just having embraced and recognized our unworthiness and our inability to do life on our own. So that's kind of what Paul's addressing here. Uh, And so we went through the gifts. Paul gave them gifts. Um, There was no definition given for these gifts. People like to define them. The gift of wisdom is this. The gift of knowledge is this. There is no definition here. It's just, Paul goes through these, the the title, the the label is the definition. So when he says, to one is given the message of wisdom, he just keeps going. He doesn't say, the message of wisdom is like this. He just says, the message of wisdom. and kind of leaves it with you. And so we talked about kind of each of these gifts last week. The message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing. So there's some of these really big, spectacular gifts. Miracles, um, discernment, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, interpreting tongues. Wow, powerful things. There are some things that are like faith that everybody needs to have, everybody's called to have, but some people are given in a special measure. Prophecy, I would even say, in large measure, is much more generalized because we are all called to speak on behalf of God to one another, speak uh, the truth in in sharing witness for Christ. There's a prophetic calling for all of us in speaking the truth. Um, And so, But then there are some people that God gives this special ability, this unique above and beyond ability to serve the body of Christ, uh, of prophecy. And so we kind of went through all of that. We kind of played with the idea that, first of all, not all of the gifts in the New Testament are listed in this passage, and not all of the gifts are listed in any passage. As you go to this one, and you go to Ephesians 4, and you go to Romans 12, and you go to 1 Peter, you go to all these places where gifts are listed, you find that in none of them is there a complete list. And what we can infer from that, what we can take out of that is that nobody who was writing about spiritual gifts meant to give us all the gifts, which probably even you could extrapolate a little bit and say, we probably don't even have all of the spiritual gifts listed in the Bible because nobody was trying to make a point of find your spiritual gift. What, what their point was, was use your spiritual gift, which you go, well, then you need to find it. Yeah, but I think... Paul's point, as we've looked at last week, is learn to live in the Spirit and your gift will flower. Your gift will grow. Your gift will come out. You don't have to go find your gift. You have to seek the Lord. You have to be passionately, deeply connected to the Lord and then your gift will become a fruit of that. And so Paul ends that whole discussion about all these different gifts in verse 11 is where we ended last time. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. He gives them to each one just as he determines. And so you can see the emphasis of what we just talked about. The Spirit gives them. They are all products of one and the same Spirit. And he decides who gets them, not you, 
not me. We don't work and earn them. The Spirit says, this is what I want to do, and he decides how to do it. So it's to his credit, not to ours. And the real emphasis is one and the same Spirit, meaning whatever your gift is, whatever God stirs up in you, whatever your unique abilities and capacities are to serve the kingdom of God, they are given to you by the same Spirit that God gives anybody else their gifts by. And Paul's point there is, when you use your gifts, however that looks, it is exactly the same as when someone else uses their gifts. Exactly spiritually the same. Even if somebody's gift is a big, spectacular, you know, lots of people respond to it gift, and yours seems like it's just hidden and nobody knows it and it never does anything. Living in the Spirit Using your gift faithfully is exactly the same regardless of result. Because it's required that we are faithful, not that we are successful. Right? So when, when we start to look around church, what it does is it humbles us to say, I have no idea who the, who the stars are here spiritually. I couldn't tell you. Because God may be working in someone in a spiritual giftedness that isn't, there's no Um, visible results to it. Maybe there are eternal results I don't see and maybe God's rewarding faithfulness aside from results. We have no idea. And so we cannot stand in judgment about who's better and who's worse spiritually, which totally fits with the gospel, doesn't it? That it's by grace we are saved, not by works of righteousness that we have done. All right, so that's where we kind of ended. So then pick it up with me at verse 12, 12 and 13. He kind of launches into this other thing, and it's a really interesting discussion about what does that mean for us. He gives us this picture um, of how spiritual gifts function together uh, in the church. So he says this, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. All right, so the body is a unit made up of many parts. What Paul does is he introduces this picture of a body. What all of us are here tonight in a body. We all have a body. We all understand a body. So it's so relatable because he starts to use this picture that everybody can like somehow intuitively understand since we all own this thing called a body, right? So he says, now when you think about the body that God has given you, it's a lot like what I'm talking about. It is a body made up of many different parts and yet it is one body. Then he flips it around and he says, although there are many parts, there are one body. So he says the same thing kind of twice, really trying to emphasize it, okay? So what would you say Paul is trying to get across as he starts to use this picture of we, there's a one body with many parts? What, what kind of stuff is tra- Paul trying to connect the dots for with them when he talks about it that way? What would you say, Trina? Okay. Right. But there's there are different parts doing different things. And everyone is still considered an equal, quote unquote, part of your body. 
just my, you know, my hand is just as much a part of my body as my neck or whatever. Like, you know, I might be able to survive without one or the other, but I don't go, well, then I'm going to lose my hand because that doesn't really matter to me. My hand is a part of my body. It's different, but it still belongs. It's still organically connected to my body. And I still, still a living part of me. Whether it's different or the same, it's all one body. It's unified into one body. Okay, what else? Yes. Absolutely. So the idea that we call it handicapped if somebody doesn't have parts that are working, similarly what Paul would say in our, in our spiritual body is that God's design is for all of these parts to work together in whatever capacities and whatever callings he's given you for all of these parts to work together. And so there becomes suddenly this emphasis. Why do you think that's such a big deal for the Corinthians that all of the parts need to work together? Okay. What does that, what does all the parts working together mean about unity? Yeah, but they're, why aren't they unified? Yeah. Yep. So when you come to church and you treat people like they don't matter because they're not good enough or they, they don't appeal to you, you reject the truth that Paul's teaching here. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with everybody, but there's a difference between treating someone like they don't exist, they're not worth your time, they're beneath you, you wish they weren't a part of the church. And being like, it's like people say to me a lot of times, well, I don't, I don't, can't be best friends with everybody. I never said you had to. I'm not, but I don't know how we got from, I have to be best friends with everybody to, I have to treat people like they don't exist and they're invisible and I have to mistreat. Like there, isn't there anything else? Is that the only two options there are? Can I act like someone is valuable and matters? that I will pray for you and care about you if I find out about need, that I could be there for you if it's all possible for me. But I don't have to you know, intertwine my life with yours. I, you know what I mean? There's different parts of the body, and the Corinthians decided that if you weren't rich enough, you didn't matter. If you, didn't, uh, if you thought eating meat was a problem, eating meat off to idols, you were a problem, and we would be better off without you. And, and they went through all of these, these things um, where they had all this twisted idea about what was legitimately a part of the church, a valuable part of the church, and what wasn't, and why. And so Paul says to them, there's lots of different parts of the body, but it's a unified whole. There is one body. The body is a unit, a unity. One uh, organism working together, made up of many parts, and they form one body. All right, so one body. Um, when we talk about uh, a church that is, has unity in it or a church that is united, how do we accomplish that? Unity. A church that is not, the Corinthian church, obviously divided. A church that is not divided. How do we, if the picture is the body is one, we are one, we are unified, so what does that mean? What do we do with that? How do we do that as a church? How do we function like that? Tom? Well, I think uh, it's, it's, uh, each individual is seeking God. Uh, 
Yeah. So we have we have one source of life. We have one all of us individually responsible to seek and connect to God, which deeply uh, embedded in this truth is that through the Spirit, we are pursuing God. We are, God is being made, made known to us and we are connected through the Spirit to our Heavenly Father, to our Savior, giving, getting life from Him. If we all do that, if we all have one person at our core, we are unified. We are together in that way, for sure. How about other things? Are there other ways? Yeah, Linda. Okay, so when he uses the picture of body, and we talk about genuine Christian love for one another, the connection between your body and, and caring, one part caring for another, do, can you make any connection with that? Fellowship? Okay, yeah, I'm saying, in the, in the spiritual realm, we would call it ca- fellowship, connection, love. How, what's the analogy in our body? Okay, you don't go, oh, that part's sick, let me get rid of it, right? If that part being sick or hurt, the whole body cares for that part. If you sprain your wrist, your body's not like, what's wrong with you, stupid wrist? You, you instinctively protect that wrist. Your body, even the, your systems, your circulatory system, and start to... Uh, swell it up to protect it to stop it to keep it stiff from moving stuff like your whole body starts to react to an injury to one part and then your whole body adapts to accommodate the injury to that part we are connected there is concern one for another we we suffer together we succeed together right it isn't these we don't see it as a bunch of different individuals. We see it as a whole, as a connectedness. It is not something that is easy, humanly speaking, um, natural, humanly speaking. It is something that we grow in as we grow in love, in concern for one another. So that when something happens to somebody or, or, or someone's suffering or hurt, or we, we naturally, as the body, reach to them. And we're not, we're not great at it, you know, we, we're human beings, but that's what we're going for. That's what we're shooting for, the, the pathway we're heading towards. Does that make sense? So the, the love that he calls us to in the, in the church is represented in the way that the body reacts to other members amongst themselves, right? All right, other ideas of unity. What makes us unified? Unselfish, okay. So, you know, there's there are... Things that my mind wants to accomplish that maybe my you know my body can't accomplish anymore. Uh, I my one they all have to work together. We all pay together. We all decide together what we're going to do or not going to do. Right. So I can't be just about me. It's not about a lone ranger. It's not about everybody in the church. Is about me. Um, early on, we we made like a kind of a covenant. We're not going to call this Mark's church. Right. Uh, I kept like. People would say, well, well I, maybe I should come to your church. And I'd be like, it's not my church. <laughs> if anything, it's the Lord's church. And if you don't want to call it that, then it's our church. But don't call it my church because that's the wrong, even just the wrong words. We don't want that, right? So there's not one person who is like, uh, you know, this is their church. This is their, the point of this church is them. Outside of Jesus Christ, it, there's no human part of it um, that's elevated amongst, amongst others, right? What were you going to say, Louis? Okay, 
And I think when you get down, that's the essence of what he winds up hitting on is there's a unity of purpose. What we tend to think and what we've acted like, and for good reason, I'm going to rewind here a little bit, but for good reason, we've acted like unity equals uniformity. Everybody needs to be sufficiently the same in order for us to work together. The Bible never presents that. As a matter of fact, like here, the Bible presents that a very different idea about unity. Um, and what we did is, like, you, you'll drive down the street and see churches. You'll see, you know, a Methodist church and a, a Presbyterian church and a Episcopalian church and a Lutheran church and a Baptist church and, like, all these different denominations. And, you know, if, you're, if you don't know history about it, you're kind of like, what is going on here? How many different kinds of Christians are there, you know? What happens is, as you go back in history, there were reasons why people defined themselves in these different denominations, and it was uh, slight differences of belief. Like, I don't think uh, anybody in, in one of those churches would genuinely think someone in another church isn't even a believer, necessarily, just because they go to that church, but they thought they were wrong about some things. They were wrong about the mode of baptism or about church government or about whatever. They were wrong about how to celebrate communion or whatever. They were wrong about something. And so they said, well, this is us, and we all agree about this. And so we're going to come together like this. And we all agree about this, and so we're going to come together like this. And so you could shop for a church based on what you believed. I believe this, I believe that, I believe this other thing. There's denominationalism. The ultimate uproot of that was that it was much more important about all these little smaller matters that you believed than about the big matter that we all believed. And so we all segregated off into these little sections where we all agreed, and we called that unity. Right? And it was necessary. There was an assault. At, at one time, there was an assault on the Bible's not the Word of God. The Bible, th- this is just a bunch of fairy tales and stories. You can't rely on this. And so people started defining doctrine and stuff. And there was a time that it was necessary. But the, the result of it nowadays is there's just all these little factions of Christianity running around going, we're right and you're not. And everybody thinks that all Christians do is fight about all this stuff and nobody can agree about anything. Right? So what I would say to you, Paul's point here is this. We can come together and we don't have to be uniform to be unified. We can serve the cause of Christ together because we are convinced about what we're supposed to be doing. It doesn't mean that we all agree about everything, but we all agree about this. What are we supposed to be doing? Can you imagine your body if each part had its own mind and was deciding what the agenda was for this minute? You know, if your hand was like, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to sleep. You know, and your legs, no, no one of your legs like, I'm going to go for a run. And the other leg's like, no, I'm just going to drag. Like, like total confusion of a body all acting independently. But the point is, the body is unified because the body acts as one. It moves as one. And if you, you know, for some reason through accident or illness or something, your body can't move as one, you work very hard to get back to being able to use your body as one unit, right? Because that's what's functional. That's what works. And that's how we work as human beings. Paul's saying that's how the body of Christ works. If we're not functioning together, if we don't know what our goals are, if we don't agree about how we're going to accomplish them, then we're pulling in all kinds of different directions. You ever been in a church that was pulling in all kinds of different directions? That's a rebellion against what Paul says here as this is how God has called us to function as the body of Christ. If God has called certain folks to lead, if God made that clear and, and that's the normal way of doing it or whatever, then there should not be a push against that leadership 
just because, well, I don't think that's what we should do. I think this is what we should do. There's, you know what I mean? That's inappropriate, just like it would be inappropriate in the body for the hand to go, no, I'm not going to do what the brain asked me to do. You, the body works together as a unit. Everybody taking its part. Everybody taking its role in the body. And so we function together as one. So for us as a church... We put together a constitution. We put together core values. We talk about, you know, what's our vision each year. And we try to communicate all that stuff. Why do we try to communicate that? Because we believe that the body is a unit. The body is a unity. The body is one. And we all need to own what God is asking us to do as best we can so that we can move forward together. And I think there are some simple basic things that we all agree on, that God wants us to reach the lost, right? I think that's not a hard thing for us. Uh, Easter Sunday comes around and people come in those doors that don't know Christ. I don't think anybody's here like, I just hope nobody lost comes in those doors. Because, you know, then they would pretty much be disappointed every week because I guarantee you every week people come in those doors that don't know Jesus Christ. And we have the opportunity to share the gospel with them through how we welcome them, through how we act and interact with them, through how we worship. Uh, Probably a very underestimated testimony that we have. If somebody came in here who doesn't know the Lord and sat next to you in worship, would they think you believed or you didn't believe? Do you know what I'm saying? There's lots of ways we get to share Jesus Christ with people around us by how we engage here. And we get to talk about the truth and speak the truth. We all agree that that's something we're supposed to do. And we kind of agree about how we're going to do that. Like there's a, there's a genre to the way we do it. We're not going around, knocking on a bunch of doors, you know, trying to like confront people with, with life and death. There are people who do that, and I don't have stones to throw at them. I know that's not me. And there have been people who've been part of our church before who have said, I feel called to do that. And I said, Godspeed, go do that thing. But you're not going to find a lot of people from our church that feel called to do that. It's just not our personality. That's just, that's just not who we are. We will go and challenge you that the people God's put around you in your life, you need to live Christ in front of them and see if they can see Christ in you and be drawn to him. That to me is always the thing. God plants you different places and then God fills you with certain abilities and relationships and whatever to go spread the message. And people respond or they don't respond, but that's why kids ministry is such a big deal to us. Because if you believe that that, mindset if you if you agree with that mindset that god has given us places of influence and we need to do our best to maximize that then the easiest one to see is the kids that god's given us that we need to maximize our effectiveness at reaching them for christ the youth group we need to maximize our effectiveness of reaching them for christ and, and young adults kind of started out of that mindset we have you know 60 70 80 young adults in the church back then and it was like we had all these young adults and everybody, like, they're all disconnected. Let's get them together and see if we can do something for the cause of Christ there. So that's what we're looking at, is taking the advantage of the opportunities that God has given us. We also agree, and I think from the very beginning have always thought this, that one of God's callings for us is to minister to brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting who are wounded, who are broken, who are beat up. Maybe they, it was their own hand. Maybe they disconnected from church and they've been wandering out there in the world for a while trying to you know, drink at the, the, the well of the world's uh, value system and it beat them up. You know, it dried them out. They're, they're, they're devastated. 
we have a tender heart for that and we believe God's called us to bind up the brokenhearted and to mend the wounds and, and to minister grace to those hearers. And then there are some who, you know, life has been hard and, or, or someone has betrayed them or done them wrong and, and life has shattered them and we want to minister grace to them. We want to put pieces back together. We want to see that happen. Then there's people that are, that are just on this journey and they just need to grow and they just need to learn and the word of God is the truth. So we have an approach about how we do ministry together. We call it core values, you know, and we, so we go after that. And then there's just a personality of who we are. It's just, it's a, as God brings more people in, the personality shifts a little bit, but it kind of stays centered around who we are as a church. And God puts this thing together and we serve the cause of Christ together. The, the question is not, what gift do I get to use? The question is, has God called me here and if he has, am I connected to the Spirit? Am I living in the Spirit? Because if I am, then my role here will be uh, you know, naturally pouring out of me as the Spirit is in me, as the Spirit has control of me. Does that make sense? So one of the ways that I disconnect from the Spirit and disconnect from God's cause is I allow myself to become ununified with the direction, with the purpose, with the goal of our church. And so we serve the same goals together. It may be that five years from now, the goals that you think are more important than the goals we're doing are the goals God has for us. And God's just asking you to wait. You know what I mean? It may be that God wants you to adopt the goals that God's given us now and get on board with that and then give you a pathway of influence. And I don't know, but I know this. When God asks us to act, he asks us to act together as a body. And that takes deliberateness for each of us as believers to act in unity as one. All right, so does that make sense? So the body, different functions, different abilities, different limitations. In other words, one of the things about the body is not anybody can do it all. In the body, in your body, not any part of your body can do everything for your body. Right? Your heart, super important. Can't live without it. But it can't breathe for you. You have to have your lungs for that. It doesn't digest your food, your stomach. You know what I'm saying? Like, as important as somebody is, as important as one piece is, it can't substitute or take the place of the whole body. It can't do all the functions of the body. The body needs the whole body to do the functions of the body. And so that's part of his thing. We all have limitations, and they are God-given limitations. God does not give any one of us enough ability to be independent and on our own. He designed us to need each other to be in a community together so that I have both places to give in service and people to receive from in service. I am divinely limited, divinely empowered and divinely limited. It's like amazing how God has designed that. And so we all have different functions, different abilities, different limitations, but the point is we are called to serve the body, the collective selflessly. And so my hand serves the body in what it does. If I'm hungry, my stomach can send a message to my brain that it's time to eat, but it usually involves my hand going and getting something, which, you know what I mean? Picking something up to put it in my mouth. Like there's a working together of responding to one another. There isn't a, you know, well, why do I always have to pick up stuff? You know, why is it always me? Why can't anybody else do this job? Like a healthy body doesn't ask questions like that. They don't look around at like the foot. Well, foot, you never have to pick anything up. It's always me all the time. You know, like that kind of complaining. The, the understanding is what God has asked me to do. I want to do it faithfully. I want to do it selflessly and I want to serve the body. 
I want to do it in a way that I'm convinced is healthy, a, a way that I'm convinced is unified with the whole, and I want to be faithful. I want to be convinced before the Lord. You don't need me to convince you. You don't need one another to convince you. You need God to convince you about your role in the body. And so I don't usually go after people. When we put out the workshop thing, I wasn't like, um, here's the people I want to talk to. I just put it out because I believe God will speak to you. We don't pass a plate around because I believe God speaks to you about giving. You know, you, you take a quick look at what God's doing in your life financially and see if, God, see if you think God's blessed you, and then you give as you feel blessed. You know, that's between you and the Lord. Like, we don't, you need to be connected to the Lord. We can, we can speak the word and teach one another, encourage one another, but eventually you've got to have your own relationship with the Lord that goes beyond any person. And then God can use you in people's lives as you're connected that way. Okay? And so then he says, so it is with Christ. The body is all these things, and so it is with Christ. That's where you kind of like, this is what the church is like. The church is like a body. Okay? And so he starts to make these connections between the body and the church. All right, so let's talk about some of the other reasons that, that Paul uses this picture of the body for the church. Uh, the church is called the body of whom? Body of Christ. All right, so let's think about that a second. The body of Christ. Now, this is a little theological, but it's kind of cool, so I'm going to throw it out there with you. Um, of the Godhead, what is the uniqueness of Jesus as a part of the Godhead? He became flesh. He became a human being. He is the God himself, very God, almighty, in human flesh. Now, he was also flesh on earth. He was God's human fleshly representation on earth, right? And then he left. And now Christ has a different body on earth, a different flesh human representation here, and it's us. In other words, in the same way that Christ represented the Godhead on earth physically, we are now called to represent the Godhead on earth. How cool is that? Does that feel like too big a job for you? Yeah. So you know it is too big a job for you. So you know what God did? He gave you His Spirit to abide in you, to live inside of you, to take up residence in your soul and said, I will never leave you by yourself. I will never leave you on your own. I will always be with you. Even when the world caves in, I will be with you. But then the choice is, in my body, in the choices I make physically to, to interact with this world, the words that I speak, the attitudes that I take, the, the, the actions that I do, or the, the places that I spend my time or my resources, do they represent God or something else? how I represent God in my body and collectively as a church, as we represent God as the body, how do we do? How are we doing? Our example is Jesus Christ. So we follow him. We are Christ followers because we are following in his footsteps, taking up the cause and the call that Jesus had in sharing and, and, and showing God to people. We are now to show God to people. Don't believe me? Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says we are his ambassadors. As though, and this is so powerful, God is making his appeal through us. Wow. God is trying to reach lost, broken, hurting people, people who are living without his power in their lives 
through you, making his appeal to them through you. Does that influence how you approach the lost? How you approach sinful people? How you approach broken people? People whose lives are a mess? If God says he's trying to make his appeal through you, then does that flavor how you speak to them? A lot of Christians don't make so much of an appeal as they make of a judgment, condemnation, right? But God is making his appeal through us. So one of the ideas there is God in human flesh. Jesus was God in human flesh. Now we are the body of Christ on earth, right? Another thing that it talks about is that we are interdependent. We kind of talked about that. We are different on purpose. So you might think that somebody's gift uh, of, of encouragement or organization or whatever is a wonderful gift to have and conserve the body. I wish I was like that, but you are different on purpose. If everybody were the same, then our body would be limited. If, if that's kind of what Paul goes down into the next part. If the body were uh, unified by being uh, uniform, we would be helpless as a body to function. And so God makes us different on purpose. We are different by God's design. And the whole body needs each part to function to its fullest extension. So this, this picture of the body of Christ extends to kind of twofold. First to us as a church, we are a body of Christ. We are a representation of body. So that means that God put gifts in you and will stir them up as you live by Christ so that the cause of Christ will be magnified here so that so we will be effective in what we're asked to do. So that when someone comes to Christ, we celebrate as a body because we did it together. You know what I mean? So that when someone falls and hurts themselves, we as a body react to that. Not everybody has the, the, the contact with that, but everybody's a part of it because we're connected spiritually. We all function together in that way. Maybe you're not the one giving direct support, but you're the one giving support to the person who's giving support to the person who's actually doing it. You know what I mean? We're connected as the body in that way. And so we function together, keeping our our antenna up. And so together as the church, we function as this body. And that means there's allowances for differences. There's allowances for unique relationships with God, for unique placements with God. You you know, you feel uh, like your relationship is here and somebody else's relationship is here. Who cares? They're part of your body. You win or, 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 or fail, as they do. You are connected spiritually. And so it, it becomes uh, a deep concern for one another and a deep belief that we are connected that way. But it also represents the church universal, which is all the believers around this world who are actually part of the body of Christ, who are legitimately saved, children of God. And if you think about that, we, we think about it in the church as unique and different. But, I, but think about, there's lots of different churches and lots of different places do you think that some of that's by the design of God for a body to function effectively? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know, uh, styles of music. Let's just say styles of music. I love the music we have. I think it's awesome and great. Um, am I offended if somebody comes in and says, I don't like that music? No, I'm not. Because music's just a taste. It's just a taste. And if, if what we're doing, if the approach we're taking is reaching the people we're supposed to reach, if we're being faithful and following God and the music that we select and sing and all that, great. And if somebody doesn't like that music, they got to answer to God for whether they're putting their back up against him or not and decide what they're going to do with that. We're going to be faithful in it. But I'm also not going to look at church ABC down the street that, that does you know, organs and, and hymns and say, what's wrong with them? They're, they're so weird. 
right? Because they have to answer to God for what their thing is. And I believe it's entirely possible that God has different genres of church and different styles of church to meet different styles of people and different realms of life and different backgrounds, different whatever. And for some people, this feels like too loosey-goosey and too frivolous and whatever. And for other people, like a, a, an old-style ritualistic church feels like you know too, too bound up and whatever. That's between them and the Lord. Our responsibility is for us to be here doing what we're called to do and to be, you know, recognizing that God creates unique fellowships for his unique purposes. And I can't really stand here and judge that church or that church or that church. If I get involved, if there's some calling in me, if we're interacting, you know, with leadership or something like that, and, and they're asking us to give input, then maybe we've got some place to say something. If somebody comes here and, and they're sharing what their experience was and, um, and they have some deep concerns and we'll encourage them to go make that right or go share those concerns or whatever, yeah, absolutely. There's right and wrong. But what I'm saying is style of church may very well be just as much of a, a, a reflection of this truth about the uniquenesses of the body of Christ different callings, different placements, different directions. And so overseas, the way they worship Christ might be very different than the way we worship here. I don't need to tell them to fix it. They might be, they might be doing it better than we are. You know what I mean? Different doesn't mean disunified. Different doesn't mean disintegrated. Different can very well mean by the design of God, he's using us all together to serve the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, so then verse 12, here's what he says. And, and kind of before he kicks off into this discussion about how we should look at ourselves as a part of the body, he says this, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. All right, so we're baptized into one body um, and given one spirit to drink. So what's Paul getting at as he talks about that? What's, what's he describing here? By one spirit, we are baptized into one body and given one spirit to drink. What stu- what's he talking about there? Okay, being one in Christ. How did we get to be one in Christ? When did that happen for you? When you got saved. He's talking about when you got saved, the same spirit did in you what he did in me. That make sense? So now, the reason that's important is because as we're about to talk about spiritual gifts, people talk about this baptism by the Spirit in verse 13. It became this hot topic uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, a uh, hot topic about uh, the baptism of the Spirit and what does that mean. Uh, there were people who uh, tried all kinds of different expressions of being baptized in the Spirit. It was, we speak in tongues, or we, um, we roar in the Spirit. Or, you know, like lots of these different like vocalizations of being baptized in the Spirit. Um, the reality is, this word baptism, um, first of all, is not talking about physical baptism. We're going to do a baptismal service here on June 3rd. It's going to be a pool of water. We're going to put people in the water. We're going to take them out of the water. That's baptism, okay? That's baptism physically. It is a sign, it is a symbol of what we're declaring that Christ has done in us. And people who have gotten baptized here, great blessing, wonderful testimony, awesome thing, baptized. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's actually using the word baptize for its literal sense. He's using it, if you were untranslating it, he's using the Greek word that means 
what we do at baptism, to immerse, to place into. Okay, So that's why we baptize by putting someone in water, to immerse them in water, to place into water. The word means to immerse or to place into. So when he talks about baptize into the body, what's he saying that the one spirit did to us? He put us, covered us. He what? Claims us. Okay. Cleans us. Okay. Makes us new. He baptized us into one body. He, he put us into one body to place into, to immerse. He placed us into the body. It's almost like that, you know, kind of like a puzzle thing. Like he's the one putting the piece there and the piece there. And he's the one building the Lego thing. He is the one placing us as a part of the body. He's placed us into this body. That's why I think that, you said it four or five weeks ago, we take being a part of a church way too lightly. And I'm not saying God doesn't pick people up and move them from one church to another. He does. But I think overall as Christianity, we take it way too lightly. Because what God says here is the Spirit places us in a body. And that's the discerning. That's the desired fact. Where, when has the Spirit placed you there? Where has the Spirit placed you? Not where do you like? What's close to you? What do you think? It's God lead me to my home, to my church home. The body that I am supposed to be placed into, you lead me there. And then the Spirit places us into the body. It is not... The spiritual baptism, the, 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 the word was used kind of as this idea that after I get saved, somewhere down the line, when I really, really get serious about being saved, God will, will do this baptism of the Spirit. The Spirit will come on me in a new way. And when it comes on me, then these spiritual gifts will come out, especially gifts like the gifts of tongues. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about when you got saved, you were baptized into the body of Christ. You were immersed into the body of Christ. You were placed into the body of Christ where you belong. He placed you there. The same spirit that placed you placed me. He places all of us in the body of Christ. And he uses that same imagery, which is a little bit more obtuse, and I can't quite come up with something that just Slam dunk makes sense. But I know what he's saying. We were all given one spirit to drink. In other words, he's still talking about salvation. He's talking about how the spirit comes into each of us, right? I don't know why the the drink imagery there is used. That's a little bit hard to get our head around. Um, But the idea is exactly the same. We all partook of the same spirit, just like we all by the same spirit were placed into a body. Does that make sense? So we're not waiting around. I hope someday I get a spiritual gift. I hope someday I'm serious enough about God that he pours out a spirit on me and gives me you know, some spiritual gifts. Why is that the way that that was taken? Well, if you go back into the early church in the book of Acts, um, in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 10, there was this statement about the baptism of the spirit. And the baptism of the spirit resulted in people speaking in tongues. Okay. And, and so what, he's, what happens is they correlate that to this, even though this is not about that. It's weird because it's in a section speaking about spiritual gifts, and yet it's not really about that. Um, here's what I would tell you, I believe, about Acts 8 and Acts 10. In both of those sections of Scripture, a new genre of people w- were being included in the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, it was the Samaritans. Who was it before the Samaritans were included? Who, who were the only people included? The Jews. 
It was only Jewish people at first. Day of Pentecost was only Jewish people. Acts 8, they're going out. As they were commanded to by Christ, they were going out. And Philip goes to the Samaritans and begins to preach the gospel to them. And they receive it. And they wait for the baptism of the Spirit, for the Spirit to come on them. The Spirit came on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And, you know, as people believed, then it was, then there's this Samaritans. And there would have been within the Jewish community, as we can tell from the New Testament, a big doubt that Samaritans would be eligible to be children of God. That doesn't make any sense. Samaritans? No, I don't think so. And so the fact that it was after they received Christ, after they believed in Christ, there was this delay and this visible, clear evidence that the Spirit had come on them makes some sense. It's like God saying, I want you all to know this is legit. This is really happening. This has my stamp of approval. How am I going to do it? I'm going to do it with a big sign, with a big show, so you can tell, right? The other time the baptism of the Spirit is talked about in terms of waiting for it and spiritual gifts is in Acts 10. In Acts 10, it is Cornelius. It is the first Gentile believer. Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile. Cornelius, just all Gentile. No Jewish background at all. And so, again, he receives Christ and there's this laying on of hands. There's this waiting for the Spirit to come as a sign that, yes, even Gentiles are included. If you remember at the beginning of Acts 10, uh, Peter's up on the roof and God keeps dropping this sheet down with all this stuff he's not allowed to eat. And Peter's like, I'm not going to eat that. And God says, I told you to eat it. It's kind of like you know, at your dinner table with your kids. Like, I told you you're going to eat that. No, I'm not going to eat it. And he keeps dropping this sheet down and saying you're going to eat it. And God's making the point, I have now opened the door. And what you think is unclean is no longer unclean. So feel free. Go out there. I'm preparing you to go and share the gospel. And while God's giving this vision, the men from Cornelius are knocking on Peter's door downstairs and God says, go down and go with them. And he goes with them and and Cornelius and his whole household come to Christ and they say, wait for the Spirit. And they wait and the Spirit comes in a visible way on them to, again, be a sign, a stamp of approval that God has included the Gentiles. Uh, and then they go back and have a big conference in Jerusalem about it. But those are the times we talked about baptism of the Spirit connected with spiritual gifts and sign gifts. Okay? Here, baptism is not about the spirit, uh, uh, spiritual gifts. It's about being baptized into the body. Not about baptized into gifts, baptized into the body, placed into the body. And implied in it is that as you're placed into the body, you're placed there with a gift, the, the baptism, the word baptism, is referring to how the Spirit is putting you where He wants you to be. Okay? All right. And then the end, just before we finish that up, and we'll pick up at verse uh, 14 next time. He says, whether Jews, Greeks, slave, or free. So why does Paul say that? We're all one. We're all one body. We're all given one Spirit. And then he puts this in there. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves, or or free. What, what's, the, what's the punch of that verse? What's that saying uh, to the Corinthians? Why, why is that in there? What's the truth behind it? What's he trying to say? Okay? Everybody's included. Okay? So why Jews and Greeks? Right. Okay? So your, your heritage status, your national status, that you could use to say, I'm a better person or a worse person, as was normal in this time. If you were a Roman citizen, you were a better person. 
If in some religious circles you were a Jew, you were a better person. You know what I mean? So the normal way that we would segregate people, Paul says, God has made us all one, whether Jews or Greeks. But then he also says whether slaves or free. So it's not just national background. It's, can you imagine that you're a slave and this person's free? If you can think about what it was like to be in a society of slaves and slave owners, and this slave is on the same standing as this free master. That is like mind-blowing. That God would wipe away any sense of division or status or standing. And so what I try, I mean, I don't know how we do this, but this is, we've got to do this. People walk into the body of Christ. There can be no standing. There can be no measuring. There can be no looking someone up and down. There, they're all, they're, all there can be is compassion and kindness and love for someone that Christ died for. That's all there can be. That's got to get communicated. This has got to be a place of level ground where no one is higher and no one is lower and no one's better and no one's worse. It doesn't mean that I'm not further along in a journey than you, but that's because of God's grace. That's not because of me. And if I, if I have something to offer to give to you, I don't give it to you with like, someday you'll measure up. I give it to you with a heart that's full of gratitude that I even know God because God showed himself to me and has, has led me along this journey. So I turn around and give to you what's been given to me by grace, not something that I earned. We have lost so much humility in the body of Christ and we cannot afford to be that way. This has got to be a place where there isn't slave or free, there isn't rich or poor, there isn't good-looking or bad-looking, fat or thin, divorced, remarried, separated. There's no labels on anybody. There's just people who need God, including me. That's all. And, and certainly, like I said, there are some people who have experience and some people who have don't, and, but those are all gifts of grace. Those are not to my praise or your praise. The fact that you've studied the Word of God, you've got nothing to study if God doesn't inspire this. If God doesn't move prophets, you have nothing to read. If Jesus didn't come to earth and pick out disciples and carry them around with him for, for three years, you've got nothing to read about Jesus. Do you know what I mean? This Anything that you are, anything that you know, anything that you've achieved in your life for the cause of Christ is a reflection of the power of God to take a, a lost sinner and bring them to life and reveal God to you. That's what it is. And so let's live like that. Let's act like that. On Sunday, let's reflect that as people come in those doors. Let's be excited to share Jesus, this amazing gift, this eternal gift, with people who are desperately in need of it. People whose souls are dry and dark and dead. And wouldn't it be awesome if, you know, I'm not huge on everybody come forward and pray because I think I, I've been in those scenarios and I, I think 85% of that is emotion and whatever. But it doesn't mean it can't happen. I just, I'm not huge on it. But wouldn't it be awesome if Sunday we found out somewhere along the way that dozens of people, hundreds of people came to know Christ because of what happened Sunday. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that change everything? Like your job situation, your home situation, your health situation, if you knew that because you were part of this body and because you put your gifts in and you served the cause of Christ, there were 
tens or hundreds of people who were in heaven, forgiven as a part of the family of God forever, and had their sin washed away, would that change everything? So let's live like that. That's for us as a body to function together. We need to keep in mind that we have a goal, that we have a function, that we have a calling. We are baptized into one, by one spirit into one body. And the body is a unit. We are the body of Christ. And so let's act like it. Let's function like it as we go forward. All right? Okay, next time we're going to talk about insecure body parts. Um, and we're going to talk about po- body parts that are uh, the clickish body parts. So uh, we'll get into that next time we get together.